making you say hi to your neighbor. Will you do that for me? Will you look at your neighbor right now and tell them hello? Tell them what your name is? That way they can get to know who they're sitting by. By the way, if they know you, they may be watching their wallet, so we better be careful, right? <laughs> Said, I know you, I got a good eye on my wallet now. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, greatest thing about salvation is this. I did the sinning, Jesus did the saving. And aren't you glad for that? And by the way, he did it the best it could ever be done. As you leave tonight, we brought a few things tonight to show you. This is Good Friday night. This is when we remember what Jesus did for us. Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails. This is very similar. Now, if we were going to make it authentic, we would have tied off pieces of glass, bits of metal, and maybe some sharp stones. And that's what they beat Jesus with. Most people never survived the scourging. We'll put it down here, because if you'd like to come by, I really want it to be a visual aid tonight. We're trying to remember what Jesus Christ did for us, right? And just getting nailed to the cross doesn't tell half the story. It really doesn't. Now, I'm going to read from you the Gospel of John tonight, chapter number 19. And if you have your Bible with you this evening, I want to read just a few verses there. And in particular, I'm going to look at what's called the sixth cry that Jesus utters from the cross. And if you look at your Bible in John chapter number 19, verse 25, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, by the way, this is John's gospel, John never ever refers to himself by name. So the disciple that's standing by is John's way of saying, I was standing there. That's me. The Bible says, the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then he said to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own house. Tradition says that John never left Mary. Most of the disciples left and they went to the uttermost parts of the earth. And until Mary died, John took care of Jesus' mother because he promised that he would. Now, we're almost to where I'm going to talk about tonight. You ready? It says... Now there was a or verse 28, and Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. If you have a newer translation, it probably says completed. Um, we'll talk about that word, underline that word in your Bible. That the scripture might be fulfilled, he saith, I thirst. And there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop. Hyssop, by the way, is a weed, or 
that grows. You see it a lot in your pictures of the Holy Land. It grows between the cracks and the wailing wall. It looks like a bush is growing out. That's hyssop, okay? The Bible says they, they got a sponge. They filled it with this sour wine. They put it on a hyssop branch, and they said uh, they put it to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. Have you ever felt like in your life that uh, you had way too many of those half-done projects? You can kind of look around and see stuff that you started, but you haven't finished. If you have seen it, your wife is, trust me. <laughs> I promise you, she knows it sideways, forwards, and backwards. I got a picture that I want to show you, a picture of Mount Rushmore. Did you know that the gentleman that did that actually wanted that granite to go all the way down to their waist? That's an unfinished project. Isn't that amazing? It's a beautiful one, isn't it? But he had originally intended that it go all the way down to their waist. Michelangelo is a name that you know. They said that there was a particular chapel or church that... They began to gather up Michelangelo, his unfinished projects, and they said they filled that church completely full of things that he started but never finished. And when they counted up what he finished versus what he worked on but never finished, his unfinished projects were far more than his finished projects. One of Case in point was the Sistine Chapel. We've all seen pictures. He had to lay on his back 8 and 10 and 12 hours a day and paint that. And he gets so frustrated doing it. Michelangelo was actually more of a sculptor than a painter. He really didn't like that job. And he'd quit, walk off the job, and go back to Venice. And the Pope would finagle him to come back again and again and again to finish the Sistine Chapel. Isn't that amazing? You see, when people die at a young age, many times they live a lot of projects that are in progress. There are some that wonder what kind of president John F. Kennedy would have been had he not been assassinated three years into his term. If he'd have got the full four years, been reelected like normally happens, what might he have accomplished? Great. Did you know Alexander the Great died at age 33? He died after, believe it or not, uh, taking all of Greece, Persia, Asia Minor, Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Media, and India. What more might he have done if he had lived to the ripe old age of 40 or 50? But he died at age 32, age 33. Now, when you begin to think about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died at age 33. He only had a ministry for three years. And while most of us have incomplete work, unfinished business, half-completed projects, Jesus finished everything that he started. 
He accomplished every task that he was given and he accomplished all that he planned to. For a few moments, if you read through the Gospel of John, you would come to verses like John chapter 4, verse 34, that says, Jesus said unto him, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me to finish his work. John chapter 5, verse 19, But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, they bear witness of me, and the Father hath sent me. You know, it's amazing when you read about Jesus the night before he died. He walked from the upper room where he had communion with his men. And as he made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed what's referred to as the high priestly prayer as he makes his way from one place to the other. That prayer is record, recorded for us in John 17. John 17 and verse 4 says, as he prays to his father, he says, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. You know, Jesus accomplished everything that he ever set out to do as the will of the father. Now this evening, I'm not saying that there weren't more people to be healed, more miracles to perform, more incredible things feats that could have been contained in the Gospels. But Jesus accomplished what the Father had given him to do. Jesus reveals that his mission was to concentrate on a few men, 12. And he poured his life into those 12 men, and those men changed the world. Jesus said, I've come to do thy will, O God. Now, when we pick up this story that we read just a moment ago, Jesus has been on the cross for several hours. It's now approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If you remember, Jesus was nailed to the cross around 9 in the morning. He hung in, in sunshine from 9 o'clock in the morning until 12, about 12 o'clock, God turned his back on the world. And the Bible says in the middle of the day, it was as dark as midnight. And as Jesus died on the cross, the Bible now says it's approximately the sixth hour for the Savior. And he begins to cry out from the cross. And he says, I thirst. I don't doubt for a moment that he did. If you would lose the amount of blood that Jesus lost, you would probably be dehydrated. By this time, Jesus' mouth is dry. Jesus has been hanging there on the cross for six hours. And so they take that sponge and they dip it in that sour wine. And Jesus has that sponge stuck in his mouth, basically. Now his tongue is loosed from the roof of his mouth. And Jesus cries out, it is finished. And the Bible says that he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Now, let me remind you this evening, those are not the words of a victim. Those are the words of a victor. 
When Jesus cries out, it is finished, he doesn't say, I am finished. He says, it is finished. Now, I want to look at that word. That's a very interesting word. And I want to spend a little time this evening looking at that word finished. Verse 28 is the word accomplished or completed, same word. It's the word in the Greek language, tautelestai. It's the idea of basically, well, well, we'll talk about it grammatically. Now, you got to pay attention for a few moments because I'm going to teach you some things about this word that I think are very important. And there are some tremendous spiritual ramifications when you understand the scriptures here. So when I talk about that word grammatically, it's a very powerful word, yet it's a word of brevity. It's a word of brevity. When I say that, he's basically saying the task is accomplished. And yet the Greek, they believe that you should say it as few words as possible so they wouldn't say it is finished. They'd just say one word, tetelestai. And basically it means it's finished. It's finished. That's the way we translate it into our English. It's basically saying it's done. It's been completed. It's a singular word in the Greek. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, Jesus shouted out these last words on the cross. And it's a word of triumph where Jesus says, it's finished. When you look at it grammatically, you could describe it. Now, stay with me for a second. In the third person, it's singular, it's perfect, it's passive, it's an indicative verb. Now you say, Pastor, I don't speak that way. That's not the way my brain thinks. Well, the Greek was very specific. Let me help you with that. It almost, uh, it almost conjures up learning Latin. My wife took Latin in high school. And, you know, the, Latin is, a, is an ancient language. I mean, nobody speaks it. And to be real honest with you, in my opinion, it's a waste of time. But Latin is a dead language, the old saying goes, as dead as it can be, first it was killed by the Romans, and now it's killing me. <laughs> but it's the third person singular. Jesus isn't speaking of himself. Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. That's your phone. Will you turn it off for me? But that's more than that, it's in the first person. When Jesus said here, it is finished, it's in the third person, not the first person. The first person would, I'm finished. The third person is, it is finished. But it was spoken in the indicative, which means it's a word of certainty. When I say that, I'm saying, uh, when Jesus says it's finished, there's no question about it. He's not saying it may be finished, it should be finished, but Jesus says it is finished. But notice it's also passive voice. It's, it's, it's something that's finished with, a, with bi something bigger than himself. You know what he's saying? This was the will of God. This was the divine decrees of God. What I have finished, God finished. Isn't that amazing? So the word teleesta is a verb. It's in the third person. It's singular. It's perfect. It's positive. It's indicative. 
And it's a word that Jesus uses here on the cross. But it's a very beautiful word. For example, if that word was used in the day that Jesus lived, it might be used by a farmer that would describe a, an animal that was so beautiful it seemed to have no faults. And he would look at it and he would say, Taliesta. Or maybe it was used by a carpenter when he finishes a piece of furniture and he would smile and he'd say, Teleasta, it's finished. Or, or maybe by an artist when his finishing touches on the canvas, he'd step by and he would pronounce it, Teleasta. A servant might return to his master when he finally finished his chores and he'd say to his master, Teleasta, it's finished. But you know the most beautiful way it's used? It's a banking term. In fact, in Egypt, archaeological digs have brought up papyrus that survived for 2,000 years. And they begin to decipher what they were saying, and they were bank papers. And when an account was paid in full, they would write the Greek word, teleestai. You know what the word means? When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he paid our account in full. You catching that? Grammatically. What happens spiritually? When we talk about Jesus saying from the cross, it is finished, what was finished? Well, for sure his suffering was. You remember Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3 predicted that Jesus would face intense suffering? The, the, the Isaiah wrote, he said, he's despised. He's rejected of man. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He's despised. And we esteemed him not. Say, Pastor, what is Isaiah saying? Jesus was born to suffer and ultimately die. You remember what Jesus said? I preached about it a couple of weeks. He said, the Son of Man is come to give his life a ransom for many. What was Jesus saying? I came to die. I came to die. One of the things that amazes me is over and over again, it seems like Jesus is making his way to the cross and he says, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. And when he goes to the cross, he shouts, it's finished. I've accomplished what God sent me to accomplish, my suffering is over. But not only was his suffering completed, his sacrifice was fulfilled. I don't have time to get into too much of this, but let me just give you a couple of things. If you go back in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is that book that puts you to sleep at night that you'll never wake up from. I mean, more people want to read through the Bible and they die in Leviticus, if you know what I mean. But it's a, it's a book about Jewish culture and Jewish laws and one of the great chapters is Leviticus chapter 20 where it talks about the Passover and did you know in the Old Testament the priest would take 
two lambs, two goats when Passover took place. One goat would have its throat cut. The blood would be gathered in a bowl. And the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and he would take that blood and pour it on top of that golden chest called the Ark of the Covenant. In between those two huge cherubs with their wings out, there was a little area called, a, a grilled area, that was the top of the chest, and they would take the blood and they would pour it out what's called the mercy seat. You say, Pastor, why did they pour that blood on top of that mercy seat? Well, inside the chest, they carried the law. And the law says we're guilty. And the law says the debt's not been paid. And so when he poured that blood on top of that mercy seat, it covered, it atoned. It was a covering for our sins. It wasn't completely paid yet, but God was appeased and our sins were covered for one year. And year after year after year, that priest would have to kill that innocent animal and take that blood and pour it on top of the mercy seat. But there was another goat. That goat was the scapegoat. The scapegoat was the goat that the priest would put his hands on and symbolically he would transfer the sins of the people to that innocent animal. Then they would take that goat outside of the camp. And that goat would bear the reproach of the people and they would drive that goat. And most of the time, they would force that goat off of the top of a cliff and it would fall so it would never come back. It was symbolically saying that now that your sins have been atoned, your sins have been taken away, your sins have been removed, never to return again. By the way, can I suggest to you that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that Jesus Christ represented both of those goats? Jesus was the lamb, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the lamb that shed his blood that was poured on the mercy seat of heaven. Oh, but listen to me. Jesus just didn't atone for our sins the Bible says that he's that scapegoat who was killed and slaughtered outside the camp. Remember those verses? So when Jesus died on the cross, listen to this, he was both the priest and the sacrifice at the same time. And when Jesus finished, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, Jesus offered that sacrifice unto God, and the Bible says he sat down. One thing you'll notice in the Old Testament tabernacle, there are no seats. You say, Pastor, why did Jesus sit down after he offered his blood to God as the priest that represented the people? Because his sacrifice was sufficient. It was finished. Come on now, that ought to do something for even a Baptist. Yes or no? Yeah. Wow. You see, his suffering was completed. His sacrifice was fulfilled. 
Ah, oh, but I got one more here. No, actually, I got two more. His, Satan was defeated. Amen. Satan was defeated. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For the purposes the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You remember back in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve sinned. And the first mention of a sacrificial Savior is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the Bible talks about that Satan is going to get his head crushed and Jesus is going to get his feet nailed. You remember that? Satan thought he had him. Satan thought the cross was his victory dance. Ah, but let me tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeated Satan once and for all because he came up from the grave. You listening to me? Now, I know some of you are sitting out there and you're looking at me and you're saying, well, I'll tell you what, if he's defeated, he sure is having a blast. <laughs> if he's defeated, it sure doesn't seem like he's defeated. It seems like he's doing pretty good. Come on, does anybody else feel that way? Let me just tell you something. He ain't smart enough to know his goose is cooked. <laughs> I'll tell you a story to illustrate what I'm talking about. A little eight-year-old girl was riding with her daddy in the car. It was the summertime. The windows were down, and in the car came a bee. This little gal was absolutely allergic to being stung by a bee. If she was stung by a bee, it could ultimately kill her. And so as the bee began to fly around inside of the cabin of the car, the girl began to freak out and was crying uncontrollably. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do? And the father reached up and he, he grabbed the bee in his hand. She was still crying and still crying and still crying. And the father opened his hand and the bee flew off. She said, Daddy, what did you do? She said, sweetie, you don't need to worry. He stung me repeatedly. You see his stinger right there in the palm of my hand? He may, you may be afraid of him, but he can't sting you because I got his stinger. Let me help you with something. Jesus got his stinger. <laughs> you with me? Yeah. You see, Satan knows he has but just a little while. And Jesus is coming back. When Jesus died on the cross, listen to me, he defeated Satan. Amen. Quickly, let me add, our salvation was secure. When Jesus said it was finished, theologians talk about the finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Nothing needs to be added that was already, already accomplished. Jesus came to bring life. And Jesus says, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. And we can. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You say, Pastor, what happened when Jesus 
paid for our sin debt at the cross. When the finished work of Christ took place, what happened? Hey, it ensures our regeneration. You say, what does that mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, by the way, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either going to die in your sins or you're going to die in Jesus Christ. Are you listening? And the Bible says, if you're in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It ensures not only my regeneration, it gives me justification. You see, I've been declared righteous in spite of my sinfulness. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's happy with me because of Christ. You see, I've been sanctified. I've been justified. The Bible says I've been adopted. Romans chapter number 8, verse 15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I've been adopted. I've been justified. I've been regenerated. But listen to me, I'm being sanctified. You say, Pastor, what does sanctified mean? It means I've been set apart, and I'm in the process of being changed. You say, Pastor, you haven't been changed enough yet. Uh, bottom line is, he's not done with me. I like Philippians chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, Being confident that this very thing, that he hath begun a good work in you, will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. By the way, he's not done with you either. He's not done with any of us. He's committed to changing me into the image of his son. Well, we've talked about finish grammatically, finish spiritually. What about finish practically? Well, since Jesus paid it all, I hope you're listening, there is absolutely nothing that needs to be done. There's some of you out there that think salvation is some kind of do-it-yourself project. Well, I go to Good Friday night communion service. Surely that's brownie points with God. Really? I got baptized in a Baptist church. Man, the list is endless. I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. And we somehow think that us doing good stuff really impresses God. Can I help you with something? Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, My righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Folks, what I'm trying to say is this. Can I say it bluntly? Stop performing. It's not what you do. It's what he's done. Come on even a Presbyterian would shout for that. <laughs> Some years ago, a Christian farmer got a carpenter to make him a gate for a pasture, and he had a fence out there he needed a gate with. And so as he began to talk to this man, going back and forth about this gate, he began to tell him about Christ. And he told him that salvation was by grace through faith. It's not what you do, it's what 
Christ has done for you. And the carpenter looked at this farmer, this Christian farmer, and he said, it can't be that easy. There's no way it can be that easy. So the big gate came when the gate was done, and they took the gate and they hung it out in the pasture. And when they finally got it hung, the farmer took out a sharp axe, and he said, I want to add just a couple of strokes to your new gate. He looked at him like he'd lost his mind, and he took that sharp axe and began to hack that gate. He says, how's that look? He said, you're ruining the gate. And he says, and that's exactly what you do when you try to add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Are you getting what I'm saying? It's not what we do. It's what he's done. Quickly, let me say this. Everything that's been done for salvation is complete. But you have to receive it. To as many as receive him, to them gave he the authority, the power to become the children of God. Maybe you're here tonight and you say, Pastor, I've gone to these services all of my life. Well, let me say something for you this evening. Jesus Christ has died on the cross and there's nothing you can do, but you need to receive his finished work. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, John chapter 6, verse 29 says, The work of God is this, that you believe in the one he has sent. What do we do to get salvation? We believe. We believe. You receive Christ. And then let me say lastly, Jesus' work is finished. And our job is to never forget it. You say, Pastor, how do you know it's finished? Well, let me tell you a couple of reasons why I know it's finished. When Jesus died on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. Teleastai. The Bible says that that big, heavy veil between the holy place and the holiest places. By the way, that veil was approximately six to eight inches thick. It took teams of oxen to pull that 4,000-pound curtain into place. And the Bible says that that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. And people with the doors of the temple open could look all the way in to the Ark of the Covenant for the first time in all of, in, of all of Judaism. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying when Jesus finished his work on the cross, we now have access to God. There's nothing between us and God. It's finished. Let me also say this. Sunday morning, we're going res- to have Jesus resurrected, aren't we? And I'm looking forward to Easter, aren't you? You say, Pastor, how do you know that God's work was finished at the cross? Because God's spirit rose Christ from the dead. You remember what Romans chapter 1 and verse number 6 says? The Bible says that Jesus Christ was raised with power by the resurrection and he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? It's finished. It's finished. Let me add this. How do we know it's finished? Jesus said, all right, I can't send the Holy Spirit until I go. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, listen to me, 
on Pentecost, God's spirit came. You say, what does that mean, Pastor? It means salvation's complete. It means it's finished. Let me just say this. The very fact that we're gathered here on a Friday night, 2,000 plus years ago, and we're coming to a table, and we're remembering his death, means... I think it worked. How about you? Would you agree? Yeah. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. And by the way, the church would have failed miserably years and years ago if we didn't remember the fact that Christ's death paid it all. It's paid in full. Little boy, eight years old, decided that his mama wasn't giving him enough an allowance, and so he wrote a little note and when they set the table, he put the note under his mother's plate. And the note said, for cleaning my room, 20 cents. She looked at the note, she watered it up, she threw it away. The next morning, he decided, well, maybe 20 cents didn't get her attention. So he wrote a new note. For cleaning my room and emptying the trash, 30 cents. She watered it up. She threw it away. So Sunday comes around and he gets another note and he says, for doing yard work, cleaning my room, taking out the trash, 50 cents. Mama took the note, watered it up, threw it in the trash. The next day when he sat down at the table, under his plate was a note. And it read, for going down into the valley of the shadow of death to bring you into the world, for risking my life, no charge. For hours of sleepless nights, praying over your feverish brow in the wee hours of the morning, no charge. For eight years of cleaning your room, cooking your meals, darning your socks, no charge, no charge. For 96 months of washing your clothes and making you a happy home and being there when you cry, no charge. No charge. Folks, listen to me this evening. When we come to the cross this night, when we look at what Jesus cried out, we can't help but hear him cry. For leaving the portals of glory, having angels worship me, no charge. For coming to be born of man and enduring the scorn and rejection, no charge. For allowing my life to be used as a sacrifice to wash you of your sins, to allow a crown of thorns to be pushed into my brow, for nails in my hands and nails in my feet and a spear in my side, to be laughed at, to be spurned, to be, spurned, to be rejected, no charge for offering you salvation, for giving you the promise of heaven and the joy of life, no charge. And when we come to these three words, it is finished. They're words of joy. They're words of victory. And what it means is 
no charge. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Heavenly Father, as we prepare ourselves to participate in communion this evening, God, I pray you'd speak to us. God, we're grateful tonight that we can take a little bit of our time and carve out just a, an hour, hour and a half, where we can sit here and think about the fact that is paid in full without any charge. God, I pray that tonight we would remember what you've done for us. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. How many would say this, Pastor, I know I'm saved. I know I'm God's child. There's no doubt in my mind, it's settled. I'm as confident as that of that as if I'm sitting right in this building tonight, I'm that confident of it. How many Christians tonight would say, Pastor, that's me. Will you raise your hand and give testimony of that tonight? Thank you so much. Is there one tonight say, Pastor, don't close this meeting without praying for me. I'd like to be sure about that. Can I pray for you tonight? Is there one this evening that would say, Pastor, will you remember me as you close? Is there one this evening, would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, don't forget me. I see your hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Heavenly Father, speak to this dear one. God, give confidence. Give assurance. God, I pray that tonight she'd recognize there's no charge. Teleestai, it's paid in full. It's paid in full. Now with her heads bowed and eyes closed, just for a second. This evening, we're going to participate in communion. Scripture says that this is a very solemn time, a very holy time. A sacred time. Let's not participate in a way that makes it a mockery. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying this. We ought to look at our hearts right now. We ought to spend some time doing some examining to make sure that our hearts are right and pure, that there's nothing between our soul and the Savior. Heavenly Father, speak to us tonight. Help us not to have any unfinished business. Lord, for some of us, it may mean right now we're confessing some sins. It may be right now that we're making some holy vows that basically say there's some things I need to take care of. I'm not going to let it go any longer. I'm going I'm to deal with it. Maybe, Lord, there's somebody that we're at odds with. Another brother or sister in the faith Somebody we know that it's stupid and it's a waste of time, but we, we won't let it go. God, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to work through that tonight so that we can make it right. God, I pray that we'd participate not in an unworthy manner, but a way that would make glory and praise unto you. In Jesus' name, amen.